everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast. We have a couple of announcements today. We just want to thank you all for sending in some feedback and, um, you know, responding to our podcast. And we're going to be making a couple of changes. Uh, one of the things that we decided to do is to leave the more detailed description of our guests uh, for the show notes so we can get right to the the podcast. We know you guys are all chomping at the bit to hear the interview as soon as, as soon as you log on and download the episode. So that's one of the changes. And um, the other thing, Mike, you want to talk about the Amazon affiliate thing that we've added to our website. As most people know that are listeners of the show and watch our films, uh, we are in production of our third film. And uh, so we, instead of doing a Kickstarter, which we may eventually do at some point in the future, we're not sure yet. Uh, we wanted to offer something where everybody wins and one way was doing it's like amazon affiliate uh i think it's amazon affiliate links so what we did was we gathered all of our guests of the podcast and our films and we've put in their books and there's some cds and you can find hemisync in there you'll see links on our website if you go to the podcast page and i think there's even links on our home page if you Check some of the books out. I think they start you with four uh, icons of books, I think it is, uh, on the page. If you click one, you're, you're, it kind of throws you in this little mini Amazon shop. It's all run by Amazon, so it's safe and secure. And you're not only supporting our guests, but a small portion of the purchases that you make uh, actually will help fund the podcast and our future films. We really want you to support our guests because they do good work. And uh, it also helps, you know, even though we're only making, I think, pennies <laughs> per sale, but it does help uh, in the long run uh, that you know you are supporting our work and our guests' work as well. And uh, it's just something... It's a little quicker than Kickstarter. I've been reading up on Kickstarter. I don't know if you have, April, but it's good. It, it does have a good purpose, and a lot of people love it. Um, but right now, I'm just seeing it being a little oversaturated, especially in the film market. And this is something that we can give back, uh, that, that you can get something in your hands almost instantly. Basically, su supporting two people at the same time. I know a lot of times with Kickstarter, there's the perks, and sometimes with these perks, you can donate like $25, and you know you might not see your perk for another two years until after the film is made, and uh, this is something we wanted to get out now, and I, I know we're not, we probably won't make nowhere near as much as we would on Kickstarter, but it's 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 just you know a little bit here and there that i think it's mainly that it would help the podcast there is cuz there is a production cost with the podcast and it it's it's just a a good way to keep it funded and show that there you know that it is being supported there might be other options in uh the future for other types of funding which we haven't worked out yet but we'll let you know once we have that yeah, absolutely. And doing our best to keep this podcast free as long as we possibly can. Um, and also just want to thank you guys for reaching out and contacting us. Uh, you could reach both Mike and I either at the info at the past series, or if you have a question directly for Mike, it's Mike at the past series.com. And if you have a question for me, April at the past series.com. Uh, Mike, I just wanted to take a moment to uh, answer some of some people that wrote in and asked me if I actually use some of Joe Gallenberger's techniques when I went down to my Atlantic City trip. <laughs> so oh, yeah. uh, 
Yeah, I just want to let people know I actually did. I tried it on one night. Uh, the Maroon 5 concert, by the way, was awesome. But um, it was after the concert. My f- best friend that I went with, she ended up going back up to our room, and she was tired. It was around like 11 o'clock. So I was just thinking of what Joe had said. And if you haven't listened to that podcast yet, you might want to go back and uh, listen to some of the information on psychokinesis and how you can kind of manipulate slot machines and the roll of dice. But I decided to try it on and put some money into a machine and just started reciting this mantra of, let me be the light here in this very dark place. Because, you know, casinos, they aren't the happiest of places and people are losing money and maybe there's some gambling and addictions. And so I was kind of going in when I was at each slot machine as picturing myself as hope and life and light and giving people, I don't know, I guess just more ammunition or excitement to think, oh, maybe I can win too. So I was just picturing that that's what I was picturing. And then I remember his mantra saying, okay, I will win this or something better for the greater good of all, because I would look at what the minimum bet would be or what I could win and, you know, something like that. So those were the only two mantras. And my intention was just to see if I can get the bonuses and, you know, make money. And sure enough, it totally worked. And I started laughing because I became that really annoying person that I would intentionally kind of go and sit by someone. And I was using his technique of what machine feels right. And I would put my money in. And I kid you not, for about an hour, I was getting up and moving to each machine saying this mantra. With the first hit, I kept hitting bonuses. I was getting free spins. I was up something like $280 or whatever. And uh, come midnight, I started getting tired. And, you know, and then, I don't know, I wasn't really focusing or the intention wasn't there. I'm not sure. Then eventually I, I went up to bed, but I was laughing after the experience. And I was just so excited to try his technique that I really didn't set the intention of keeping the money. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, needless to say, I did put it all back in. But what was interesting to me was as soon as my focus started to change and I started to get tired, that's when, you know, the money started depleting a little bit. But it was a lot of fun. And I would definitely encourage you guys if, if you have haven't already to listen to that podcast and he has a great book called inner vegas which is where i read up on some more of the techniques so it was a lot of fun and just wanted to thank you guys for writing in and asking me and following up if i actually did that and i did so feel free to reach out again um you know email us with any questions we'd love to hear from our audience you know what we should do is uh instead of the amazon links we should just go to the casino Right? <laughs> <Do> your technique. <laughs> we should. But, I know. What, what are we doing making films? Let's just go to the yeah. casinos. <laughs> All right. Well, today we have another great guest, uh, Joseph McMonagle. We interviewed his wife, Nancy, who is currently the executive director of TMI. And she said, you know, Joe would probably love to come on. And of course, who wouldn't want to interview him? He's a retired U.S. Army NCO. Um, he was involved in the remote viewing operations that was conducted by our military called the Stargate Project, which became unclassified. And he just has so much experience, so much knowledge, a couple of near-death experiences, um, you know, is a pretty accurate remote viewer. And, you know, it's always cool to talk to somebody that worked on a classified military project. We'll put his links to his website in the show notes, uh, and his books are 
now they're on our website <laughs> and they're also on uh joe's website as well i recommend that everybody listen to the podcast with nancy uh, mcmonicle she kind of explains how she met joe her husband and then um come back and then listen to our talk with joe mcmonicle all right so we would like to welcome joe mcmonicle to our show today how you doing joe I'm doing fine. Thank you, April. We're so happy to have you on here. There's so many different things that we know we can talk about in this hour of this podcast. And uh, we also know you have a very large following and many people know who you are. And But there might be some of our listeners who have never heard of you before. I doubt it, but there's a possibility of that. So, um, you know, we're really interested in talking about your remote viewing um, experiences, uh, the Stargate Chronicles, you know, what your experience was during the military. Um, I also know that you had a near-death experience, and I actually don't know about that, so I'm interested to hear that story. I haven't had a chance to actually um, get to know what that story was of yours. So we were wondering if maybe you would like to start with how you got into remote viewing and what your connection was with the military, because I know that you're known to be kind of one of the more famous psychic spies here. Okay. Um my my career in the military was actually in intelligence. Uh, I did uh, quite a bit of work in the um, in overseas. I spent nearly fourteen years overseas uh, straight without coming back to the states. And um, I would go from Far East to Europe, Europe to Far East, and so on. Uh, it was basically the Cold War that was guilty for that. I spent 27 months in Southeast Asia. Um, only 14 of them were in actual, actually Vietnam. The rest were in other places adjacent to Vietnam. Um, of course, doing intelligence collection. I uh, came back to the States after those many years overseas and was assigned at the headquarters, and I, I really didn't want to be there. Uh, the headquarters, is re, uh, headquarters assignment is renowned for being kind of a pain. Um, so I volunteered for a language school uh, in hopes that they would send me to Monterey, California, which it turns out they did. I volunteered for Chinese Mandarin. Uh, I wanted to learn to read it, write it, and speak it. And so they sent me to Monterey, and that really upset the headquarters. So I got a call from the general, and the general said, if you come back to the headquarters and give up your, your desires to speak a language, uh, I will ensure that you become a warrant officer. So I went back to the headquarters anyway and got pinned a warrant officer on a Monday. They waived my one-year um, one year of temporary duty as a warrant and uh, made me a chief warrant officer the next day and I took over my MOS on the third day. That's my military occupational specialty. And so I was doing this job working for the gen directly for the general as an advisor and running my military occupational specialty worldwide. And I was approached about a year and a half after that um, 
I was approached by some people who exposed me to the fact that the Russians were using uh, psychics and wanted to know, they let me read some of the material and they wanted to know what my opinion was, that they valued my opinion on whether it was a threat or not. And because I replied that in the affirmative that I felt it was a threat, um, I wound up being called back in for two or three more interviews and as a result of those interviews was sent to Stanford Research Institute International and I was tested by having to do six remote viewings double blind. I had no idea what a remote viewing was and it turns out in that initial six remote viewings I had um, uh, four or five of them were very near perfect and one was almost and uh, the probability of that happening by chance is astronomical so by the time I got back to the headquarters from California my general had volunteered me for the project uh, what's now known as Stargate Can you describe a, a typical remote viewing session for somebody who, who's not really familiar with that? Sure uh, the, in the initial program, uh, you have to understand that this was not supposed to be a permanent collection program. The original program was supposed to only last for three years and it was a it was designed around the idea of, of trying to mimic some of what the Soviets were doing at the time and because we couldn't we couldn't get anyone inside their unit of course, and so we had no way of gauging how good or how bad they were using psychics. We just felt that it was a threat. And the way you can, you can sort of assess that is you put together your own temporary unit, you recruit and train or recruit people that can do what they do, and you lay out a protocol and you spend a year or so training and practicing with the protocol so that you're up to speed. And then you spend a year going out and collect, actually collecting information by targeting your own things like the Pentagon, uh, White House, NSA, um, even my own headquarters, that kind of thing. And you try to collect information using it, using psychic ability uh, for that year. Once you've spent the year collecting information, you then uh, come back in out of the cold, so to speak, and you turn all that information over to an independent agency uh, like NSA or DIA, and they compare it to ground truth and write a report, a final report, based on their opinions as to whether or not it was uh, very good or very bad. And they say, this is probably, well, this is how good you did or didn't do. So this is probably how good or how bad the Russians are. So that was the idea. And so the initial project, which was called Gondola Wish, was a three-year project, and they were going to recruit and, and bring up to speed three uh, counterintelligence agents. And uh, we would be targeted against uh, our own stuff. Uh, it turns out they, they were able to find six that they felt would do the job. So they doubled the number 
we had six remote viewers initially. I was uh, tested and selected first, so I had the honor of getting the 001 number. And then they realized once they had given me the 001, if they tried to give 002 to the next man, they'd be telling everybody how many psychics they had. So the second person got a different number entirely. Um, in any event, uh, we were perhaps two months into our training period after they had selected the six of us and um, uh, suffering through a great number of failures, I would add, when the Iran hostage situation occurred. But uh, going back to your original question, the, the way remote viewing is done is um, it's really very simple. Uh, you go into a windowless room or a room where you cannot see anything going on outside. Uh, you sit at a table with some paper and pencils. A uh, monitor comes in. The monitor, of course, knows nothing about the target either. They have no idea uh, where the person is that you're going to be targeting. But the monitor would hand the remote viewer a picture and and uh, say, this is your targeted individual for today. Uh, meanwhile, that targeted individual will have used a random generator to generate a, a code or a series of numbers which would tell them which envelope to pull out of a safe drawer. They would go to the safe and pull that specific folder out and go out and get in a car and drive around for 30 minutes. And at a preset time, they would stop, pull off to the side of the road, and open the package, and it would tell them where to go. It might be to a chapel, or to a graveyard, or a museum, or a bowling alley, or a motel. It could be almost anywhere uh, in the Menlo Park area of California, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, once they decided on where they had to go, they would drive there and at a prearranged time make sure that they were interacting with a specific location that they were given. Uh, at that specific time, the monitor would ask the remote viewer to uh, start describing where, their, where they perceived this person was. In other words, they would have to start giving a detailed description or drawings of where they felt that person was standing. Um, in the beginning, it's called an outbounder target. Um, and so, uh, my first remote viewing, I was sitting in the windowless room, third floor of the radio physics lab at SRI International, and uh, Russell Targ was sitting with me. He was the co-author of Mind Reach with uh, Hal Putoff and help start the investigation into remote viewing. And uh, he handed me a picture of an outbounder, and it happened to be Ed May, Dr. May, who I'd never met. And he said, uh, he should be at the location he's supposed to be at. Please describe where he is. And I remember looking at Russell and saying, well, okay, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> and uh, Russell said, well, just tell me whatever comes in your head first. And so I had, uh, I closed my eyes and I had some impressions, flashes of a building. I didn't, didn't recognize the building. I, it was not like something I'd seen before. 
So I drew some sketches on a piece of paper and uh, to include the front facade of the building. And um, when I wasn't getting flashes anymore, I said, that's all I can get. And uh, we put the stuff aside and, and terminated the session. At a prearranged time, Dr. May came back to the office and met us. And without saying anything, we all piled in the car and he took me to the actual location where he had, where he had gone, where he had been standing. And in fact, the building he had gone to was the Stanford, or the University of Stanford Art Museum. And he was standing squarely in front of the art museum. And the facade of the building I drew happened to match it exactly. Um, it turns out when it was judged, I had a first place match. Um, as I did on many of the others, and uh, uh, I was in shock. I didn't know that you could do that. It really surprised me. Um, so as a result, uh, uh, I found out what remote viewing was all about. Late, later, I was the, the. It was very difficult. Operationally, you couldn't you couldn't send someone to a location. You know, obviously, if you wanted to know what was going on in KGB headquarters in Moscow, you could not send somebody there and have them hang around by the front door, or they'd be arrested. So we had to come up with a different way of getting to the targets of interest. And Ingo Swan, the psychic working at SRI at the time, came up with the idea of using geographic coordinates. Um, we used geographic coordinates for perhaps six months, and the CIA took exception. They said that they felt it was obvious that I had an eidetic memory or, or a near photographic memory, and I had memorized a lot of the locations in the world of interest. So we told them, fine, just put the geographic coordinates in a double-wrapped opaque envelope and just hand me the envelope or put the envelope on the table. And that's what they started doing, and it, it works just as well that way. Now, do you think that even though Stargate became unclassified, do you think that remote viewing is still being used in the military today? No, it's not. Um, there, there's a lot of people who are conspiracy buffs, and they believe, well, the CIA figured out it was working really well, and so they wanted to bury it. So they fired everybody, closed it down, and then restarted it again. No, they, they didn't do that. Uh, the problem the problem is even worse than it appears. Um, almost anybody that came in contact with the remote viewing unit and had anything to do with us, uh, their career suffered. Um, I, I volunteered for the unit, and gladly so, because I felt that we were vulnerable to the use of psychics by Russians. And as it turns out, it, it turns out that I was correct. We're very vulnerable to this. And the day I volunteered, my career died. Um, it, it midway in my remote viewing uh, experience, I was actually called in by my career manager, a full colonel at the Department of the Army. This is a man who is supposed to be looking out for me and my promotional my promotions and 
and getting me to the right schools and things so that I can continue to progress in my military career. And what he basically told me was, he said, um, uh, I called you in because I wanted to tell you to your face that I think you're nuts. I don't want you in my army. I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of my army. So that, that was the response. Hmm. Um, we, we got that response from a lot of people. Uh, I, I was told by a senior senator on the Select Subcommittee for Intelligence that I was uh, completely insane. I was doing the work of the devil, and I would burn in the fires of hell for it. Um, you know, there's a number of people that felt that way about it. And so coming in contact with the, uh, the psychic unit where you were taking great risk and watching your career be terminated. It almost feels like a double standard. Here they are, they want to, you know, kind of test this out to see if it works. They're finding that there's accuracy, yet, you know, at the time it probably was difficult for them to wrap their minds around. And then, you know, here's this. I mean, even still to this day, I think some people may hold some of those same views for people who, you know, claim to be or are, you know, psychic or can remote view. And, you know, some religion can get mixed up into there. And, you know, everyone is doing the work of the devil and we shouldn't be able to see into the future and do this and do that. So um, it's interesting. It almost seems like the military had a double standard there. We want to see if this works. We found out it does. But then, it ruined people's careers. Oh, well, there there clearly was a double standard, but um, I think there's a lot of misunderstood information about remote viewing. I, I think when they closed the program down, uh, it, they intentionally exposed it on Nightline and intentionally put the information out in sort of half-truths. Uh, I call it lying by omission. Uh, there were a lot of things said about remote viewing that just simply aren't true, and that's in the positive as well as the negative vein. Uh, remote viewing is not not 100%. It's uh, rarely gets to an 80% accuracy level. Um, I think my accuracy for a period of 37 years averages out right around 50%, um, but that's under double-blind controls, it's under scientific controls. 50% uh, is pretty good because the expectation by chance alone is somewhere less than 20%. So I'm at least double or better uh, what chance might be. The problem is you can't, you can't know or you can't tell when you are accurate. So there's uh, numerous ways of uh, being able to to guess whether or not somebody's uh, probably more than likely being accurate versus not accurate, but these are these are really tough things to do, and because of that, there was a lot of science involved, a lot of research involved to try to formulate or find ways of using it um, that would be of benefit that could be trusted. Uh, the difficulty was in the application side of the house, they didn't spend a lot of time paying attention to some of that, some of the science involved. And because of that, it was some of the remote viewing that was done was fairly sloppy. And I think that uh, there was a lot of argument by a lot of intellectual, overly intellectualized people 
as to whether or not it was worth it. Um, my position on it is that every, just about every mission we ever got for a psychic to work on was delivered DOA. And they, you know, uh, almost everything came to our office was a year to a year and a half old, and almost everybody else had worked on it for at least a year and got nowhere with the problems. And uh, so all the problems we got were pretty much dead on arrival. No, no one had been able to do anything with them, satisfy them in any way, get any kind of information on them, etc. cetera. Uh, we were able to solve those kinds of problems 22% of the time. That doesn't sound like a great percentage, but when you're working on things that no one else could get anything on, I think that's a pretty phenomenal uh, phenomenal uh, percentile. Um, and of course, some of the things we worked on were extremely important, uh, like the loss of an aircraft in the Soviet Union somewhere over Central Africa, which was uh, possibly carrying nuclear weapons. Everybody was looking for this aircraft to include every terrorist organization on the planet for obvious reasons. And nobody could find it for a year and a half, and we found it in a matter of hours. So, you know, that little bit, I think, is is the part that no one pays any attention to. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up about some of the missions that you did. And earlier you talked about the uh, Iranian hostage situation. Uh-huh. Uh, now, you said that was uh, that didn't work out. Do you want to go into detail about that? Uh, no, the... The problem with the hostage scenario is, is specifically the, the Iranian hostage scenario is the embassy was taken over on a Sunday, which was not a work day. So they did not know who was in the embassy and who wasn't. And, and the problem with hostage taking, if, if we have hostages taken and we can't go back to the government that's taken them as hostages and say, we know you're holding... Mr. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, if we can't tell them exactly that we know exactly who they're holding and who they're not holding, then they can disappear someone, basically, and you'll never see them again. Um, in, in the case of the Iran hostages, uh, three of the hostages that were taken were CIA agents in country that nobody even knew were there. Uh, no pictures existed for them um, until we had done some sketches of some of the faces. Uh, we were able to uh, take roughly five or 550, 500 or 550 photographs and select out who we thought was a hostage and who wasn't. And it turns out we were able to identify every single hostage that they were holding. We also, for over 400 days, monitored the condition of the hostages and how they were being held and fed and treated. And uh, there was lots of incidents within that monitoring that, uh, that things proved out to be true. Uh, an example, uh, one of our remote viewers predicted that one of the hostages would be released for medical purposes and that he didn't know the name of that hostage, but it, it had something to do with the the uh, the higher cards in a deck, in a poker deck. 
And it turned out uh, uh, Mr. Queen was uh, released for uh, for having a flare-up of uh, uh, a flare-up of oh, shoot, I can't remember what it was, but he had a significant medical problem in any event, and uh, he our remote viewer predicted he would be released in four days for that medical problem. So they, they actually put together a team of doctors and sent them to Wiesbaden, Germany before the uh, hostage takers, the Iranians, actually announced that they would be releasing him. And so they were waiting for him when he got off the plane in Wiesbaden a number of hours later. Uh, I think that that was uh, a very interesting prediction. Uh, some of the, the the way the way it worked with the hostages was very good because they had uh, a few hundred people had worked in that embassy the year the years before and had rotated out of there and were back in the United States. So if we gave a if we gave a description in detail of a room and described the pictures, the carpets, the furniture how everything had been changed or moved around and how the hostages were sleeping in the room and how they were being treated. A lot of that information was known by people who had actually been working in that room uh, a year before. So uh, what they would do is they would ask them to read our, our statements and mark the things that were correct, which they would do. And if the things they knew uh, they knew about if they were 80, let's say 80, 85 percent correct, then an assumption can be made about the things that no one knew being 80 to 85 percent correct. So in that case, we were able to point out a lot of things like uh, uh, booby traps, mine, mine and mine wires run to the trees in the courtyards. Um, you know, it pointed out a lot of things that could have gotten a lot of people killed if they had just flown in to try to rescue the hostages. Uh, so it turns out our remote viewing was extreme value, uh, at least in the Iranian hostage uh, scenario. Now, how were you given that that mission? It, was it at the time? Did you know it was the Iranian hostage, and or was it like an envelope kind of thing? When we were first when we were first asked to sort out who was a hostage and who wasn't, no, we didn't know where it was, who it was, or anything. We were taken in the middle of the night to a war room somewhere, and and I and another remote viewer were asked to sit at a table, and we were given approximately 550 photos, and we were asked to identify who's a hostage and who wasn't. And we were informed that one of our embassies, the American embassy, somewhere in the world had been taken over. But they didn't tell us where or by whom. And that was within hours of it actually happening. Um, later, in targeting the hostages, uh, we never knew who we were working on. Um, we would be working on specific rooms or specific floors of the embassy are, are looking at specific things that they wanted to know about. And uh, that was always in a double-wrapped opaque envelope, and uh, we were never told specifically ever what we were working on. Uh, we just were asked to provide the best material possible 
to answer whatever the question was in the envelope. Um, you know, the, the idea is you keep, you want to keep the psychic or the remote viewer completely blind. Um, the reason why is you don't want any assumptions being made. You don't want people leaping to conclusions based on what they think. You want them to give you just uh, pure psychic information as it comes in. And uh, so the big question that most people want to ask is, well, well, how do you know they're working on the right thing? Well, we know because we know that intention, expectation for outcome, attention to detail, that sort of thing, all, all pinpoints the psychic or the remote, viewing, remote viewer on specifically what it is they're supposed to be reporting on. Uh, that intention is extremely important. Uh, if everyone in an effort shares the same intention, and that is to get information on what it is that's necessary, or what it is that's of interest in that moment, and that's the only thing that they'll report on. Uh, it's, a, it's a miracle in itself uh, that that happens that way. We don't know why it happens that way, it just does. Um, but it happens well enough that you can depend on it. Yeah, I wasn't sure, uh, like especially with the Iranian hostage uh, scenario, I didn't know if, say you were at home and you saw it on the news and you were thinking to yourself, oh, one of us is going to get a call to come in to try and remote view this or, or, you know, I, I didn't know, you know, especially that being so long ago, I was, I don't know, I think it was like maybe two years old at the time. I don't remember the exact timeline before, you know, how long the, between the government knowing that there was a hostage situation and then it going public. So I didn't know what, <laughs> you know, how much of outside influence you already had going into that. Well, the, the, I can tell you the, uh, the information that the uh, that the embassy was taken over uh, would have had to occur somewhere between two and four o'clock in the morning, and that's about when they woke us up to go work on it. And uh, aside from that, we were all under orders not to watch the news, not to read the newspapers, not to try to guess what it was we'd be working on. And of course, there were so many targets that we had. Many of them never appeared in the papers. So it would be a it would be a serious error to guess based on what's on the American news stations that that would be something that we'd be working on the following day. Uh, that would steer us wrong faster than just guessing. So uh, not many of us, you know, took the orders to heart. And I spent a long time, maybe 15 years, never watching television during the news hour or uh, getting up and walking out of the room when a special bulletin came on. Uh, I, I just didn't want, I didn't want to be misled uh, by thinking, oh, I must be going to work on that the next day. Uh, no, that's just simply not the way it works. Uh, usually the things I worked on were classified and and buried in some way and had no relationship whatsoever with the day-to-day uh, -day news that most Americans are watching. And I would think that that probably lended to your accuracy. Like, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, if people have wanted to try this and they're first starting out, um, you know, do you have any tips with how you can become 
I guess, more accurate and not let that inner voice come in or what you assume might be or kind of, you know, guessing, you know, I, I would think, how can you tell the difference between that intuitive thought or that feeling that you're getting or those, like you were talking about those images that were flashing? How do you, how do you kind of know internally that that would be correct as opposed to thinking, well, did I just make that up or am I thinking I'm seeing this, this target or this location? you have any um, tips on how to become more accurate in that? That's a, that's a really, that's an excellent question. And the way I have to answer it is not going to please a lot of people. Um, there, all of the scientific evidence, and I'm talking now from the last, well, I've been working with the science side for 27 years or something now. And uh, I can tell you out of 40, probably 40 years of science research, there is absolutely no indication at all that, that someone's ability improves. In other words, the capacity you carry walking in the door, the talent you have walking in the door is pretty much what it's going to be until the day you walk out of the door. So um, there's, from a science standpoint, uh, I've been doing remote viewing for 37 years and my capability or my accuracy hasn't changed. It's a flat line. There's no improvement. There doesn't seem to be any way to improve it. Now, having said that, I can tell you that the consistency is better. Uh, and the consistency gets better because of practice. Uh, if, you, if you do enough remote viewing, if you become bored enough with it and spend time trying to pay attention to what's going on in your head, um, you can develop a capacity for sometimes knowing better when you're actually getting valid information versus invalid. Um, but that too has been tested and we see no evidence at all, or at least no consistent evidence, that anyone, that's any remote viewer in the world, is capable of telling you when they're right or wrong. Um, I, I think there's only been one extensive experiment to test that uh, in reality, and the only there's only two people in the world I'm aware of that's ever shown some capacity at, at times, not all the time, but at times for being able to know when they're right or wrong, and that was Ingo Swan and myself. Um, and, and that doesn't happen all the time, so. You, there's just many other different analytic ways of knowing or telling when a psychic is more on than off. Uh, there's lots of checks and balances that can be designed into the application. So it's, it's more about the protocol and the application of the techniques that lend value to the psychic information and not the psychic themselves. Um, so the, the process, if the process is not perfected, if you're not following the good good science, the, the science, what science says you should be doing, then I can tell you your remote viewing is not going to be very good. Um, and, and that's difficult for most people uh, to understand. A lot of people think, no, uh, I, I went out and I paid $5,000 to some guy to teach me how to be a perfect remote viewer and by God, if that's not true, then you know what's going on here? Well, that, that's the problem. Uh, there's a lot of 
people out there today that that charge money to teach people something that that they're really not teaching them. They they already know it. Uh, it, it it's a real problem. And and again, I I think a lot of that is because of the half truths and the uh, the sort of lying by omission that was done and the exposure of the the project to the public and what's taken place over the internet uh, since that occurred in November of 1995. Uh, I mean, w within six months of the exposure of the project, I found out by going to the internet that there were approximately 3,000 people that I had worked with that I had never met. So uh, it tells you something about the accuracy of the information on the internet. Now, it's, accuracy is pretty much what the person walks in the door with, and it just is not going to get any better. All right, and that also leads me to um, switching gears just a little bit, but on the same topic. Now, you've written a book, The Ultimate Time Machine, and that goes into some predictions into the future. So um, would you say that given your accuracy and remote viewing that some of your predictions, again, they, they could be 50% correct, you know, or, or wrong. And can you describe how this is going also into another topic about kind of the remote viewing aspect and perception of time and being able to go into the future to access some information? Yeah. Um, there, there's a, no, I, I wouldn't say it's 50% correct. Uh, I would say it's lower than that. Uh, th th there are some pretty surprising things in the book in terms of the accuracy. Um, I predicted as an example that the big crash that we're going to have would occur in 2006 in uh, the month of September. Uh, it turns out that that's approximately pretty accurate. Um, and, and there's some other things in there that are really good predictions. But there's a lot of things in there that's just... Uh, just never worked out. Just, I mean, the timing and everything is terrible. Uh, one of the things about pre predicting the future is it's extremely difficult from the standpoint that anything that changes that's of significance in the future is a changing concept. Um, concept is everything when it comes to future action. Uh, for instance, uh, there's many cases or many incidents in history that you can point to where uh, humankind has basically possessed all the tools necessary to do something. Uh, for instance, um, designing a machine to cut steel with a light beam uh, would be an example. In the year 1900, we probably possessed all the machines and all the information and all the materials necessary to cut steel or weld it with a light beam. But if somebody had suggested that in the year 1900, they would have locked him up in a rubber room. Uh, so it was many, many, many years later, 70 or 75 years later, that someone actually was able to do it. And they, they were able to do it because conceptually they were able to conceive or grasp the idea. And, uh, and then uh, the materials, of course, had been there forever to make it available, to make it, uh, to give them the ability to do it. Um, well, every, everything we invent's like that. When they come down to inventing something, we always seem to have all the materials. 
we don't have any problems with the materials being present. Well, the problem we have is with everybody being able to conceptualize the, uh, the invention or conceive how, how it could be done. So uh, it's, it's not a matter of needing something to do something. It's a matter of being able to be open-minded or, or be gifted with insight on how to actually get to that point of creativity. Um, you know, think about that. The next time you're sitting in a, a room listening to someone giving a paper and they say something like, you know, we need a silver bullet. We need, we need to design a pill that, that automatically re-splices genes in a way that eradicates all future disease for any child that's above the age of one. And, and what you'll hear is you'll hear like half the room will go hissing and booing because they think that that's impossible and crazy. And, and that hissing and booing is the only thing that's preventing it from happening. That's uh, denying the capacity of conceiving how that could be possible. Uh, so it's, it's open-mindedness. It's, uh, it's creativity. It's the ability to envision a difference that makes things possible. Um, so that, that's at least something I've learned from remote viewing and, and time. Uh, the, the other thing about the book I wanted to say is that the entire front end of the book, the whole first half, is about time and space. And I discuss a lot about the way I think time works. and. There, there's sort of a hidden value in there that I was hoping a lot of people would pick up on and it would become argumentative or at least discussed in the back end of the book. But that's been sort of overwhelmed by predictions and arguments over whether or not they're right or wrong, or that, that sort of thing. Um, the, the secret in, in the book basically is that uh, a Creativity, new things happen because somebody writes about them first or mentions them in a proposal or a presentation or, or somebody brings it up in, the, in jest in a conversation and says, gee, wouldn't it be nice if, if we had uh, whatever. And, but that, that sort of comment gets passed around a little bit and somebody says, well, you know, I know something a little bit about that. And... I have all this stuff sitting on the shelf. I bet I could do that. And so what what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does the idea come first and then the and then the creativity part come next or does someone become creative and just accidentally fall into the the item that they're going to create uh, without any forethought? Uh, we we don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you that unless people are truly open to the future and open to ideas uh, that may challenge their belief in realities or how reality is constructed, uh, we're going to be very slow in our improvement. Uh, that's sort of the hidden truth in that book. Uh, I, I really wish more people had gotten that out of it. Do you do um, remote viewing in like an everyday situation uh, at all like oh, let's you know who's going to win the baseball game kind of thing or 
that's more of well, a prediction, but <laughs> the problem is I can't pick my own targets. If I pick my own targets, then I know what it is I'm working on, and everything that I ever read about it, conceived about it, thought about it, constructive or destructive about it, comes up and fills my head up with so much noise, there's no way I can pick the psychic information out. Um, in order for me to target something, I need to not know about it. I can't, I can't be forewarned or forearmed in any way. Um, you know, just, just handing somebody a box and saying, tell me what's in the box. You've just, you've just locked them down to a spatial problem where everything that could fit in that box starts popping in their, in their head. Uh, it would be better to hide the box and say, I have a target in the next room, tell me what it is. Um, at least that way you'll get an honest response psychically. Uh, the, the idea about keeping the remote viewer blind is, is not so much to prove whether or not remote viewing works or psychic functioning works. We, we already know that. Um, keeping them blind is to encourage them to talk only about what flashes into their mind, not, not what they, they can think up that might connect in some way, uh, in a constructive way to what they're already being front-loaded with. Um, I, I can give you a number of examples of this. Um, one, one, of the, one of the tests they put me through after I'd been remote viewing for about five years is they wanted to know if they could still still jam me up with a lot of noise and so what they did is they uh, the tasker came in the room and walked right up to me and dropped the photograph in front of me and the photograph was of a uh, a rather substantially large uh, aircraft hangar uh, in a small airfield and parked all over the apron in front of the aircraft hangar were all different kinds of planes, antique planes, modern planes, jets, uh, prop planes. It, it looked like a, an air show or something, part of an air show. And then they said something like, oh, I'm not supposed to show you that. They took the picture away. And then they said, um, what we need you to do, Joe, is we need you to tell us what's, well, hell, what's inside the hangar. That's what we need. Tell us what's inside the hangar. Now, if that isn't front-loading, then <laughs> no one understands what front-loading is. Uh, what, what's the first thing that comes into your mind if, if that happened to you? Um, of course, you're going to be thinking airplanes and everything that goes along with airplanes, everything from tools to you know con construction of aircraft, uh, you know, the types of aircraft, the engines, the wings, everything you can imagine is already loading up in your brain because you're looking, you know, you're looking at what possibly could be inside an aircraft hangar. Well, in my case, what I did is I just rejected everything out of hand that had anything to do with airplanes. And I said, I don't want to know about airplanes. What I want to know about is what will make this guy happy. And I started getting interesting flashes of armored seats and things like that. So I started sketching, and I did some really detailed sketches of the interior of what appeared to be some kind of an armored vehicle. 
and it had a very complex and mo modern upgraded targeting or optical tar targeting system, which I also drew and put a keyboard on it. And then I saw what appeared to be parts to an auto loader. That's something that automatically loads heavy shells into a cannon and a number of other things. And I drew these things in detail. And what they had hidden inside the aircraft hangar was the experimental tank, now called the Abrams. It back then was called the XM-1, and at the time it was classified secret. And I drew extremely accurate details of the interior of that tank. And uh, to the point that I left off one, one tile, one keyboard tile, on the optical targeting system. Uh, I think that surprised them because they went way out of their way to jam me up with noise. Uh, but that, that's the reason you keep, you keep the remote viewer blind, is you make it a lot easier for the remote viewer if all they have to do is open to whatever information they're getting and not think about anything that might be there or might go with what's there or might have to be there, that, that sort of thing. Great. Thank you. That actually kind of also answered my question a little bit from earlier. You know, those were my thoughts. Like if you get, like you said, front loaded with stuff, you know, how do you just wipe that away and try to go ahead and, and still do the remote viewing? Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. So um, I know that we're coming close to uh, running to our time limit, but I didn't want to let you go until we also hear a little bit about your near-death experience because we have a lot of listeners who really enjoy hearing that topic and uh, we'd like to know a little bit about what your experience was and you know what, when it happened in your life and how it kind of changed your life and the information that you kind of bring back from that experience. Okay, I'd be, be glad to talk about it. Um, I've actually had two near-death experiences um, and I learned as much from the second as I did from the first, but you need to hear the first one uh, in order to understand the second one. Uh, in the first near-death experience uh, was 1970, and I was meeting my wife for dinner in a guest house in uh, Brunel Omzi. It's called Brunel Omzi, which is a small town across the Elbe River in Austria. It's right across the river from Germany, and uh, it was very close to where my my border site detachment was located. I was a border site detachment commander at the time, and uh, I met my wife there. We were going to spend the weekend, and then she was going to go back to where she was staying, and I was going to go back to work. At the time, I was doing something that I couldn't be at home, um, so my one of my friends brought her to the restaurant. We had uh, we ordered before dinner drinks. We were going to all three eat dinner together in the restaurant. And after I took a few sips of my before dinner drink, I started feeling really uh, peculiar. I, I started getting ill very quickly. And uh, I was ill enough. That I, di I didn't want to be sick inside the restaurant where people were eating. So I excused myself and I headed for the front door. And when I got to the front door and, and hit, it was a glass swinging door and I hit it with my hand, it was a pop, like you snap your fingers. And I found myself standing outside in a very light rain, but the raindrops were passing through the palms of my hands. And I thought, that's very peculiar. 
and I looked up, and I, I felt very disoriented, and I looked up and I saw this body half in and half out of the swinging door, and then I noticed my friend came out and sat down on the wet sidewalk and pulled this person up into his lap, and I drifted over, and that probably should have been an indication, but I drifted over and I saw it was me, and I thought, wow, I wonder what's going on. And uh, he started striking me in the chest. Uh, 1970, they didn't know a lot about, uh, you know, a, a lot about resuscitation. So back then, he just was striking me in the chest with his fist and yelling at me to breathe because I was obviously not breathing. They pulled up, they had a Volkswagen pull up, and, and he got up and loaded me into the back of the Volkswagen, he and a number of other people. And I followed them along the road. Uh, they went back through the checkpoint into Germany and, and south on a small road to a place called Passau, which is in the very tip of Bavaria. And uh, that, that distance is, incidentally, on the map is around uh, 58 miles, I think, either 58 kilometers or 58 miles. I can't remember now. Um, but, it, but it's quite a distance, and you have to go through a checkpoint out of Brunau to get back into Germany. And uh, they took me to an emergency room there, and I watched them carry me into the emergency room and lay me on the, the table, and watched them cutting my clothing off and sticking needles in me and whatnot. And I got very bored with the whole thing and had drifted up by the ceiling and felt heat on the back of my neck, and I thought, well, that must be this very bright light that they have in the emergency room. And so I turned to look at it to make sure I wasn't getting burned, and uh, suddenly found myself uh, falling through a, a tunnel, and the tunnel was made up of people. The, the, the walls of the tunnel were people, and they were asking me for help. And I couldn't help them. I was falling too fast through the tunnel, and it frightened me. And when I became frightened, I uh, started uh, reviewing my life. And it was an interesting thing. I don't know how it's possible, but I actually reviewed almost every incident in my life that was of any import uh, in that very short period of time in the tunnel. The review of my life was done purely by me. I didn't have I didn't have a feeling that I had God looking over my shoulder or anything. I just felt that I was reviewing it. But the interesting thing was everywhere in my life that I had made bad decisions or done things that hurt other people, I was overwhelmed with the emotion and hurt that I knew they had felt. And the fact that I had done that to some people who were extremely close to me, like my twin sister, or my parents, or my other sisters, was very disturbing to me. It, it really upset me badly. So, so in, a, in a way, we're our own worst judge. Um, in any event, at the end of that, that review of my life, I uh, found myself coming out of the end of the tunnel and into a very bright light. And the light was intensely bright, very, very white, but you could open your eyes in it without your eyes being hurt by it. 
And at the same time I was enveloped by the light, I had the feeling of being totally complete, totally awake and aware. Uh, is about as comfortable as I had ever been in my entire lifetime. And knew, instinctively knew, that the, the light must be what God is. And about then a voice said, in my head, a voice said, you can't stay, you have to go back. And I argued with it. I said, no way, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. And it was a second pop, like snapping your fingers. And I sat upright, and I was naked under the sheet. And I was, again, very, very confused. I didn't know where I was. But there was a guy laying in a bed next to me. And, and where I was was in the uh, hospital, of course. And I had been comatose for about uh, 20 hours or so. And when I woke up, I, I started telling the other patient that God's a white light and you can't die and everything's fine. There's, there's no such thing as death and there's nothing to be afraid of. There's just a transition, things like that. And he ran out of the room, the patient did, and the doc came into the room and, and sedated me. Um, the next time I woke up, I was in a, on a gurney. I was strapped down to a gurney, and I was inside a, being placed inside a stretch limo with uh, tinfoil all over the windows. They, they took me to this rest home on the outside, the outskirts of Munich, Germany, and, and uh, they had leased the entire wing of this rest home and put me way down at the end of the wing and, and started doing all kinds of cognition tests because at the time they had no way of doing MRIs or anything like that so they couldn't tell how much damage was done but they were absolutely sure I had suffered irreparable brain damage because of what I was saying you know I was saying uh, you, you shouldn't hurt other people you can't you can't die you'll only transit to a better place and there's no such thing as death and things like that and um, they assigned a a couple psychiatrists over the period of time I was there and the one of those psychiatrists had basically had experienced other patients that had had near-death experiences so he was very interested in it and he told me on the QT he said listen you're gonna have to act normally or you're not gonna get out of here and so he helped me uh, go back to being normal in the eyes of the military <laughs> uh, they, they were unable to find or prove any, any real brain damage, so I wound up staying overseas another seven years. Um, but uh, the, one, some of the things I wanted to say about this, um, I did not know it at the time because I was out of body watching everything. But what had happened is I had gone into convulsions. Uh, I had had a... Uh, uh, grand mal seizure when I fell and hit the pavement. Um, they don't know what made me sick, but uh, I went into a major seizure and as a result swallowed my tongue. And when you swallow your tongue, it's, it's impossible to breathe, so I had stopped breathing. And you don't have to stop breathing too long and your heart stops. And it was a minimum of 35 minutes from that hospital or from there to that hospital that they took me to so I was DOA for quite a while when I got to the hospital um, 
was an absolute brilliant doctor that that kept me alive. I don't know how he did it. I don't think he knows. Um, for years, many, many years, from 1970 till 1985, which is 15 years, I was absolutely convinced that God's white light. I had a second, I had a second near-death experience. Well, it actually wasn't a near-death experience. It was an out-of-body experience during uh, in 1985 during open heart surgery. Uh, I'd had a massive coronary at the age of 39 and did not quite make it to the hospital. I basically died on the front seat of the car and was restarted by the local doctor, uh, cardiologist, and spent 10 days in an intensive care unit in a small country hospital because they couldn't stabilize me. Uh, my heart kept stopping. Uh, when they finally were able to stabilize me for a couple hours, they moved me by ambulance, very quick drive by ambulance, to University of Virginia where I had open heart surgery. During the open heart surgery, I had an out-of-body and an experience with an entity that would not allow me to go to the light. I wanted to go to the light badly. I wanted to revisit the light and see if I could just stay there. Um, this entity said I, I was not allowed to do that, um, but that I could see it. And he, and he pointed to this horizon, and I looked, and I could see the light on the horizon sort of hovering there, which created a huge philosophic problem for me because I could see the light had edges. And in my definition of God, God can't have edges. Um, so it created a huge problem for me, and there are a number of other things that created problems for me in that experience, second experience. So I, I started questioning a lot of my assumptions that I had, my leaps of faith, if you will, that I had made in my first near-death experience. And over a couple of years, I, I re, revisited and revamped my beliefs and my understandings quite a bit. What I, what I think the light actually is, is what we are when we're no longer physical, or no longer in physical time-space. Um, it's a representation of how, how we are. We're actually energy beings that, um, that God, if, they're, if you want to call the Grand Creator or Engineer of God, um, that we're probably, we probably are created in the image of, of the Grand Engineer, but we don't hold a candle to the energy being that that, that must be. Um, the energy being that that is has probably started the Great Bang that created everything. Um, so, any any capability that I might have as a human being in understanding what God is is completely beyond my ken. I I I surrender to the fact that I'm not intelligent enough. I don't have enough understanding uh, to know what God is. Um, but what I can do is I could try to understand what I am as a human being and what I'm gifted with and what I should be doing with those gifts for in my life in this time-space reality while I'm here. And so I've, I've refocused um, 
my efforts in trying to understand the limits of being human and trying to understand what what are the best actions to take as a human being for other human beings. And I've given up on the idea that I will ever understand what a God is, uh, even even the Creator. Um, in fact, I, I take the position now that I think most gods that humans come up with are what I call gods of convenience or designer gods. Uh, we design a god that fits our requirements and our needs uh, versus uh, understanding that whatever God created us, it's so beyond our kin that we will never understand those things. Um, so, so anyway, that's where I am now. Um, uh, I still have a very strong uh, lack of fear as a result of both experiences. I know, I know that there is something beyond, uh, beyond what we call physical death. Um, I know that we do two things occur. We retain our personal identities, but at the same time, come to understand that we are, uh, we are basically all of the human representations that we interact with as well. So it's a, it's a way of garnering full experience from this, this world, from physical reality. And that's of extreme value to us in terms of understanding, uh, understanding who and what we are. Um, but beyond that, it's, uh, it's just too difficult. We don't have the facilities for it. So I don't know, that's, that's where I am now. Great. Thank you for sharing both of those experiences. Um, I just had one question about them. In, in your sure. first near-death experience when you were kind of moving very quickly and there were, it, it almost sounds like that they were maybe lost souls that were asking you for help. Um, is that your interpretation of maybe people that you were going by too quickly and they're asking for help? I know I've heard that some people, or there are some theories out there that there are these lost souls that, you know, maybe if they have committed suicide or died tragically in some way that maybe they haven't quite made a transition um, and they kind of get stuck. Well, it, that's, that of course is possible. Um, I've, I've come to the conclusion, or I've reached a point where my my belief is that uh, the peop the the bodies, the people, the and the beings that were basically making up the walls of the tunnel, I think are renditions of self. Um, and yeah, I I think they are asking for help. And I think I it's kind of like I I got the feeling I was looking in a mirror that there are parts and pieces of me that that are desperately seeking help and clarification and understanding and that uh, part of the reason for my being here in this reality in time-space reality is to try to uh, have the appropriate experience to understand a lot of the things that I don't understand right now the, the difficulty is uh, if I'm participating in something as me 
and having an experience, I'm, it's, a, it's really a poor rendition of the experience if I'm not getting all the other people who are present getting their perceptions as well. Um, if I got every, everyone's perception who are part of the event, then I would have a more fuller understanding for why the event took place and all the emotions and all the feelings and understandings that go around it are, are washed through it. So, so I think in a sense where we truly are um, part of those we interact with. So what we do to other people, we really are doing to ourselves. And, and I see that as sort of the expression of the interaction with the unknown people in the walls of the tunnel. I think those were expressions of me, and I made the mistake of not not wanting to help them. Uh, I had not grown enough to understand that. Uh, in, in this case now, I would stop and help every single person in the wall of that tunnel, and I think garner much more value out of it than I did just falling through the tunnel alone. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, Buddha, Buddha said it's, it's one thing to get to the top of the mountain, but if you don't get to the top of the mountain with every single blade of grass, you've wasted your time. Um, so that's kind of the journey I think we're all on, is trying to haul every blade of grass up the mountain. I have a quick question from your near-death experience that you, you you talked about your siblings. Uh huh. And you have a twin sister. I had a twin sister. She she died many years ago. Oh, okay. Because I was going to ask if there if you ever had a that twin connection. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Um, in fact, it we had we had numerous. Uh, I guess you could call them psychic experiences from about age four on. Uh, the first experience I ever had that was a psychic experience was with my twin sister there. It was a shared experience where my favorite aunt appeared to us in the middle of the night. She was glowing in the dark. She was dressed in all white and she woke us up and she said she wanted us to know that everything was okay that she had a new job and she'd be working with the angels in, in heaven. And we were really excited for her. And then she sort of beamed up like in Star Trek. Uh, we fell back asleep and the next morning I ran into the kitchen and grabbed my dad's leg and pulled on his pants and said, I, I, I gotta tell you something, Dad. And he said, what? I said, Aunt Anna is, is dead, but it's okay. She's working with the angels in heaven. And he slapped me. And it, that happened to be his favorite sister. And um, then he admonished me and my twin sister not to discuss stuff like that because it scared people and it would make people angry. So I went back to my room and cried. And he found out a couple later, a couple hours later, that she had actually died in her sleep at the age of 21. She died of lung cancer and had no, had never smoked or had no reason to have lung cancer. So we, we were again admonished strongly by my parents not to talk about those experiences. Well, my sister did. She talked a great deal about her experiences and I just kept mute. I didn't, didn't share anything. 
and as a result, uh, she was, by age 10, was being treated for schizophrenia, and uh, this is back around 1955 or so. Uh, so she was being given very strong drugs for schizophrenia, and by the time she was 18 or 19, she was definitely schizophrenic, uh, and still having her experiences. Um, when she when she died, she had a massive coronary as well. I think she was 48 when that occurred. And I was working, I was just getting ready to put a new roof on a house here in Virginia. And it was a beautiful Saturday morning and I had five workers helping me. And uh, I just suddenly knew I had to go home. I had to be there because there was a phone call coming in. I couldn't miss it. And I had no idea where that thought came from. But I had to pay all the workers to get them to quit and leave because they didn't want to leave. They wanted to work all day and make money. So I paid them for their day's labor at 9 in the morning. And I rushed home and I had missed the call from her, uh, or rather from her doctor, uh, by about two minutes. And uh, so I called him back and he said that she had just had a massive coronary and if I wanted to spend time with her, I'd better come down now. She lived in Florida. So my wife and I went down there and I spent three or four days with her. And uh, we left and she died right after we left. I had to go back down and bury her. Um, so, yeah, it's, I had a really tight connection with my sister. And uh, has there any been communication after she's passed with her at all? No. Okay. A, the, the only person I've ever communicated with after their death was my mother-in-law, Bob Monroe's wife, Nancy Penn. Um, Nancy Penn appeared, appeared right next to the bed I was napping on at, uh, let's see, it was about five months after she had passed and was uh, buried, and I woke up from a nap on Thanksgiving Day, and she was the farthest thing from my mind. But when I opened my eyes, she was standing right next to the edge of my bed, and uh, it, it actually shocked me speechless. I couldn't say anything. And she just leaned over and smiled and said, everything's fine, I'm doing okay, and then disappeared. Oh, wow, okay. Well, thank you so much, Joe. I know we're coming close to the end here. I think we're going to have to wrap up, but uh -huh. um, it was great speaking with you, and thanks so much for jumping around to all the different topics and uh, you know, giving us all of the insight that you have and sharing all of your experiences. I know our listeners are definitely going to appreciate this, this interview, so thanks again for coming on to the show. You're very welcome. I'm glad to have been on the show. Thank you. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.